from the classroom to the emergency room, OR and beyond. You're joining Trauma ICU Rounds with your host, Dr. Dennis Kim. I'd like to welcome you to Trauma ICU Rounds. I'm your host, Dr. Dennis Kim. On Rounds today, we're going to discuss one of my favorite topics, and that is shock. It's no secret that patients who develop shock, irrespective of etiology, are at an increased risk for morbidity as well as mortality, and that the ability to both recognize and institute therapy for patients in shock is a fundamental skill in the trauma surgeon's toolbox and probably one of the major reasons many of us decide to dedicate ourselves to the art and science of resuscitation or trauma surgical critical care as a specialty. Over the course of the next 25 to 30 minutes, we're going to review the mechanisms and pathophysiology of shock. We'll also discuss the importance of having a high index of suspicion for identifying this dynamic and oftentimes elusive condition. Further, we'll review the four major categories of shock. A point that I do want to emphasize right off the bat is that similar to when we encounter a patient with acute respiratory failure, we do not require definitive confirmation of the type of shock before initiating therapy. And as we'll discuss in the follow-up Shock Talk 2 episode, early management of shock is fundamentally the same irrespective of the category or etiology of the shock with some subtle nuances. I think many of the house staff, trauma surgical ICU staff, and others around here are very familiar with my shock mantra of fill them, press them, squeeze them. So there are three key objectives for today's rounds, and by the end of rounds, you should be able to, number one, understand the common pathophysiologic mechanisms underlying shock. Number two, immediately recall the four categories of shock. And finally, be able to provide a differential diagnosis for the four most common causes of shock. So when we say that a patient is in shock, what exactly do we mean? Well, in its simplest form, shock is inadequate delivery of oxygen and nutrients that are necessary for normal tissue and cellular function. Some of you may recollect from episode one in which I emphasize the importance and supremacy of the oxygen delivery equation as one of the fundamental physiologic frameworks for understanding systemic oxygenation and metabolism. And just as a reminder, we stated that DO2 was equal to the product of two key variables, namely the pump or cardiac output and the oxygen content of arterial blood or the CaO2. As we laid out previously, the determinants of CaO2 are the oxygen carrying capacity of hemoglobin equal to 1.34 times hemoglobin concentration times the percent O2 sats with a minor contribution from dissolved oxygen equal to 0.0031 times our P, little a, or arterial O2. Regarding cardiac output, we know that this is the product of heart rate and stroke volume, with preload contractility and afterload being the main determinants of stroke volume. When we multiply the cardiac output by the systemic vascular resistance, also known as total peripheral resistance, we derive the blood pressure, or more specifically, the mean arterial pressure, or MAP. So when we say that shock is a state of inadequate tissue perfusion in which the delivery of oxygen to tissues and cells is insufficient to maintain normal aerobic metabolism, ultimately what we're saying is that there's an imbalance in the rate of oxygen transport to metabolizing tissues and the rate of metabolism. Now, up until this point, we've placed a lot of emphasis on the DO2 equation and the rate of oxygen delivery to the microcirculation, but we can't forget about the second component of oxygen transport, 
namely the rate of oxygen uptake into the tissues or VO2. Put in its most simplest form, shock exists when there's an imbalance between substrate delivery or supply and substrate requirements or demand. And it's this imbalance which ultimately will get our patients into trouble, particularly if it goes unnoticed, unrecognized, or underappreciated. So under normal or healthy conditions, cellular respiration involves a variety of processes which produce ATP using oxygen and producing CO2 in the process of doing so. And this occurs through three stages. First, we have glycolysis, which takes place in the cytosol, citric acid or the Krebs cycle in the mitochondrial matrix, and finally, oxidative phosphorylation in the inner membrane of the mitochondria. Just to remind ourselves, the complete oxidation of one molecule of glucose will yield a net total of 32 ATP. So in the presence of oxygen, this is a very efficient mechanism for producing the energy currency of our body, namely ATP. When there's an oxygen debt or when a patient is in shock, oxidative phosphorylation can take place and the body is going to switch from aerobic to anaerobic glycolysis. And this is problematic in a couple of senses. Number one, the amount of ATP generated is minimal compared to the normal processes whereby oxidative phosphorylation can happen. And number two, we have the accumulation and buildup of lactate as well as other byproducts of metabolism. Now, assuming that we have a healthy 60 to 70 kilogram adult male at rest, Approximately one liter of oxygen is delivered per minute, and of that liter, 250 cc's is extracted in the peripheral tissues to support basic cellular metabolic function. Another way to remember this is that every hemoglobin molecule carries four molecules of oxygen, which is delivered to the peripheral capillary beds, where one oxygen molecule is unloaded, resulting in three molecules or 75% of the oxygen delivered, returning to the right side of the heart. So whereas the SAO2 is equal to 100%, the SVO2, or central venous oxygen saturation, at rest is typically 75%. Now regarding VO2, there's a variety of ways by which we can calculate it, but for now, I want to focus on the concept of oxygen extraction ratio, which in its simplest form is the ratio of oxygen uptake, or VO2, over DO2. And normally, the oxygen extraction ratio is 25%. As we stated just a couple minutes ago, for every liter of oxygen delivered, or four molecules of oxygen per hemoglobin, 250 cc's, or one molecule of oxygen per hemoglobin, is taken up in the periphery. And before I go any further, please do visit us at the website www.traumaicurounds.ca and do check out the show notes for this episode, which outline both in graphic and tabulated form the core concepts and equations that we're discussing. So what happens when someone's in shock? Well, let's rearrange that oxygen extraction equation to solve for VO2. As stated, the oxygen extraction ratio is equal to VO2 over DO2. Therefore, VO2 is equal to the product of DO2 and the oxygen extraction ratio, which can also be thought of as the difference in percent saturation of oxygen between arterial blood, again, normally 100%, and central venous blood, normally 75%. So that difference is 25%. 
So if the DO2 decreases, whether that's due to a decreased cardiac output in the setting of decreased preload due to hypovolemia, or let's say inadequate oxygenation of the blood due to hypoxemia and decreased oxygen content, then the O2 extraction ratio must increase to meet the demands of the peripheral tissues to support cellular metabolism. And the body, being the incredible piece of machinery that it is, is able to do so, well, until it can't, and it's at this point that we reach what's known as the critical DO2 or maximal O2 extraction. Interesting, the critical DO2 is a remarkably constant parameter, irrespective of the etiology for the decrease in DO2, whether that be anemia, hypoxemia, or hypovolemia. So beyond this critical DO2, any further decreases in DO2 will be accompanied by a corresponding or similar decrease in oxygen consumption, resulting in dysoxia or an inadequate supply of oxygen with resultant tissue hypoxia. And as we stated earlier, it's at this point that we flip our mode of energy production from the very efficient mode known as aerobic glycolysis to anaerobic metabolism with a decrease in overall ATP output and generation and accumulation of metabolic waste products that ultimately need to be expelled, metabolized, or excreted via the hepatic, pulmonary, and renal systems. Before we quickly review the phases of shock, I think we need to emphasize a couple of key points. The first point I want to make is that shock is not synonymous with hypotension, and we really want to get out of the habit of assuming that because a patient has a quote-unquote normal blood pressure, that they're somehow in the clear or that we can let down our defenses. And for anyone that's ever managed the patient with an acute hypertensive emergency, I'm sure that you're well aware that these patients have evidence of end organ damage with tissue hypoxia, despite BP readings on the complete polar opposite end of the spectrum from someone with hypotension. Again, shock is a clinical syndrome or diagnosis and a high index of suspicion together with identification of what may be very subtle clues from the initial assessment and physical exam are what will ultimately guide you to identifying its presence. A second point that I want to make is that ultimately what we're interested in is flow. An oxygen delivery meeting the demands of cells, tissues, and the organs that they compromise. To date, there is no one physical exam finding or diagnostic test that provides us with a window into the microcirculation to assess adequacy of flow, which again is going to vary depending on the metabolic needs of each tissue bed and organ system. With that said, my own personal and completely unsubstantiated bias or opinion is that the skin, and in particular the presence of modeling of the prepatellar skin, does provide us with some small glimpse, albeit insensitive, to the presence of shock in our patients. Now, people do talk about the stages of shock. Personally, I don't know that there's too much value in trying to memorize or understand the major differences between these stages, which include number one, compensated, number two, uncompensated or progressive, and number three, irreversible or refractory. I bring up the concept of stages mainly to point out that in general, there is a point of no return beyond which there is irreversible cell death and apoptosis without chance for recovery. Although some of this may be mediated by PAMPs, DAMPs, and the patient's own adaptive responses in the form of a hyperacute or overly aggressive inflammatory, or in the later phases, anti-inflammatory response to injury or infection, delayed recognition, 
inadequate source control, and therapeutic misadventures in the form of, for example, overzealous administration of crystalloids when, in fact, vasopressor and inotropic support is really what's needed, also contributes to poor outcomes. The other reason for bringing up the concept of compensated versus uncompensated shock is that this nomenclature really should replace the more vernacular stable versus unstable. Patients in compensated shock may look stable, but the act of communicating a patient's stability, I think, somehow reassures us that everything is going to be okay. Whereas when we state that a patient is in compensated shock, it kind of reminds us and all team members that things may potentially get worse before they get better. This keeps us vigilant, on our toes, looking for signs of worsening, and may prevent us from letting down our guard. A uh, well-accepted classification schema for shock comes to us from Hinshaw and Cox, who modified the original four-category system proposed by Dr. Alfred Blaylock in the 1930s. The major modification here was the removal of neurogenic shock in the original Blaylock schema and replacement with an obstructive category. Now, before we talk about the different categories, I just want to point out that there are a few limitations to the shock classification, including the fact that patients may not necessarily fit into one particular category. And as, for example, in the critically injured trauma patient, multiple categories of shock may be present concurrently. With that said, in general, if a trauma patient's in shock, the number one, two, three causes of that shock are bleeding, bleeding, and bleeding. Also, early management in general isn't necessarily guided by the different category of shock, although refinements in the diagnosis and management may be guided by the shock type. So although it's important for us to identify the type of shock, this should never delay therapy. I think the major benefit of categorizing shock or having a classification system is that it really helps us in terms of our differential approach when we have a patient who's critically ill or crumping in front of us, we can quickly go through that checklist, just like when someone is in cardiac arrest and we want to apply our five or six H's and five or six T's. Having this approach really helps us work through the differential, cross things off, and figure out exactly what's going on with our patient. And so the four categories of shock include number one, hypovolemic shock, number two, cardiogenic shock, Number three, distributive shock, and number four, obstructive shock. Personally, I like to classify obstructive shock under or included as a subheading of cardiogenic shock. I like the idea of cardiogenic shock being broken down into two big categories. One is non-obstructive cardiogenic shock, and the second is obstructive cardiogenic shock. Again, that's just my personal preference. I think given that this was originally proposed as a four-category system, We'll stick with the four major headings. So let's talk about these individually. So hypovolemic shock may result from a number of causes. Uh, Typically, these are due to fluid losses, typically lost via the GI tract or the GU tract. Another common cause is hemorrhagic hypovolemia, and this is certainly what gets trauma surgeons and ER physicians and nurses very excited. Patients can have non-traumatic causes of bleeding. And so whether a patient has a massive upper GI bleed due to a bleeding duodenal ulcer or a ruptured AAA, additionally, patients may third space. So if a patient has significant or severe burns, these patients may lose uh, vascular volume into the interstitium. 
Likewise, patients with a severe necrotizing pancreatitis, for example, uh, may also have a significant amount of fluid sequestration into the retroperitoneum. Once hypovolemia is suspected or confirmed as the cause for a patient's shock, immediate intravenous access as well as aggressive resuscitation with either crystalloid or blood and blood products is warranted. The second category of shock is cardiogenic shock, and this is where a nice anatomic-based approach will help us in terms of the differential. When I think about patients in non-obstructive cardiogenic shock, I just kind of close my eyes, think about the anatomy of the heart, and I visualize a pericardial sac, which surrounds an epicardium, myocardium, endocardium. Within that subendocardial space, we've got an electrical system, and we don't want to forget about the valves as well as coronary arteries. So the most common cause of non-obstructive cardiogenic shock is going to be an acute MI, but just thinking anatomically can help us work through the other potential causes for cardiogenic shock, whether that be a problem with the electrical system in the form of a bradycardia or tachyarrhythmia, or in the setting of a flail valve. Distributive or vasodilatory shock, unlike cardiogenic shock, the major problem here isn't so much with a pump malfunction or issues with cardiac output. The problem here really is with reduced vascular tone. And so early in the stages of, for example, septic shock or in the SERS-like state, patients may be hyperdynamic with an elevated heart rate as well as cardiac output but vasodilated with a decreased SVR, uh, either on exam or diagnosed by some other form of invasive monitoring device. Other common etiologies for distributive shock include an Addison's crisis, anaphylaxis, as well as neurogenic shock. Neurogenic shock is something we see probably once every month or once every couple months in our trauma bay. This happens when a patient sustains a high cervical spinal cord injury, which essentially results in an injury or a cutting off of the descending sympathetic cervical pathways that are responsible for maintaining vascular tone. So these patients present with a relative hypovolemia in the sense that they're not bleeding, but because their SVR is so low, uh, they do develop a hypoperfuse state. And these patients can be recognized by a combination of bradycardia, hypotension, as well as tetraplegia. In terms of obstructive shock or obstructive cardiogenic shock, there are three major causes. These include, number one, a massive pulmonary embolism or PE, number two, a tension pneumothorax, and number three, a cardiac tamponade. Uh, During the deadly dozen of thoracic trauma, we touched upon tension pneumothorax and cardiac tamponade. In terms of massive PE, the pathophysiology here is really due to an acute obstruction or increase in the afterload on the very thin-walled and normally high-flow, low-pressure system in the RV. Due to the increased afterload, this is going to increase the work on the right heart, which may dilate. This will result in findings that might be noticeable on exam, like increased JVD. And the key point here is as that right heart afterload, due to interventricular dependence of the left and right ventricles, which share a common wall, this may ultimately affect preload filling as well as stroke volume and cardiac output from the left side of the heart as well. In addition to the four main categories of shock, 
hypovolemia, cardiogenic, distributive, and obstructive. Other types of shock or terms that you might have heard used include traumatic shock, occult shock, or undifferentiated shock. Traumatic shock really involves any and all four categories of shock. So you can imagine in a patient who's severely injured, they may have a distributive component due to the significant tissue injury and a systemic inflammatory response. If patients are bleeding, this may result in hypovolemia. If they sustain a significant chest wall injury and develop a tension pneumothorax, that might also result in an obstructive shock. So traumatic shock really is sort of an all-encompassing term. Again, most of the time when someone comes in following trauma and they are in shock, it's due to bleeding, bleeding, bleeding. But we do want to have an open approach and broaden our differential when patients either transiently respond or don't respond in the manner in which we would expect them to with volume repletion alone. Occult shock or occult hypoperfusion really refers to the presence of a biochemical evidence of hypoperfusion, typically in the form of an elevated base deficit or elevated lactate with quote-unquote stable vital signs. Undifferentiated shock really is a blanket term for I have no idea what the hell is going on. And in fact, very early in the course of shock management, oftentimes this is the case. We're not sure if patients are bleeding to death or if they're suffering from an obstructive form of shock, particularly if they're in the post-operative period and we're concerned about a massive PE. So again, I think this really emphasizes the importance of having a systematic and clear approach to understanding the potential etiologies. And again, the four major categories are going to be hypovolemia, cardiogenic, distributive, and obstructive. In the Shock Talk 2, we'll go over the basic approach and management, clinical recognition and therapies for patients with all four of these forms of shock. If you're enjoying the show or you feel like you're learning a thing or two, please do subscribe at iTunes to ensure that you receive new episodes as they're released and leave me some positive feedback or comments. Also, please do visit the website www.traumaicurounds.ca and check out the show notes for today's episode. Even better, leave a comment, question, or request for me, and I'd be happy to address these as they come across my desktop. Until next time, stay safe, keep reading and take care of yourselves, your patients, and loved ones.